I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we have the distinct pleasure of letting you listen to an amazing conversation that we had with who we consider the pioneer of EMS podcasting, and that is Ginger Locke of Medic Mindset. Ginger is a full-time paramedicine educator in Austin, Texas, and she also runs her project, Medic Mindset. And if you haven't listened to it yet, stop what you're doing right now. Stop this episode. Search for Medic Mindset on any podcast provider or platform and listen to the episodes and you'll see what we love about Ginger in that she is incredibly cerebral and she dives into the psyche of paramedics and why we think the way we think and why we do the things we do. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the conversation. Um, You're not in the same spot right now? No, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) No, we haven't done a live. Oh, over a year. Yeah, it's been awful. I miss the live like the in-person interviews. Yeah. Oh my yep. gosh, I missed that. I did yeah, too. what are you doing with it? I've done almost all remote. Um, I've done, yeah, it's just gotten so normalized to do remote stuff now to do, you know. Yeah. I use um, kind of virtual, just like mm-hmm. you're doing Zoom, an equivalent. Yeah, yeah, and I'm an audiophile. Like I, Mm -hmm. I love editing. I love audio editing and, uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty good. You know, we can, we can get a pretty good sound out of this format, but in person, the, uh, the zoom H six, that's, do you, do you use a zoom? What do you use? Yep. I use the six. Oh my gosh. That thing is exactly what I use. That's butter. (laughs) It is so good. It does work really well. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I like Jocko Willink's podcast pretty well, and uh, just kind of copy get there. really close. Yeah, talk really deep. <laughs> talk really deep. Good evening, Ginger. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's asleep right now because he's got to get up at four thirty. Yeah, I know, right? Well, he's is isn't he in California, or is he in Maine? I don't know where he is. I know his business is in Maine. But that's essentially like, so, you know, Jocko, Jason's Jocko and I'm Echo Charles. Like, that's pretty okay. much how it rolls. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> I'm, I'm the editing guy and he's, he's the brains behind the operation. So don't believe a word. Y'all of that. are in Georgia, right? Yeah, we, we are. are. Yeah. So tell us where, what is your, what is your connection? You, I have a you, Georgia connection. I yeah. was um, technically born in Anderson, South Carolina, but that's only because there wasn't a hospital in Hartwell, Georgia, right over the Savannah River. And then I grew up in Athens, Georgia, and was there. I went to University of Georgia, graduated from there, moved out here in 98. Um, So yeah, that was my my mom was a college professor at the University of Georgia. Uh, They all still live there. In fact, um, I just got back um, on Sunday from visiting my dad for the first time since COVID. Oh my God. He's in Athens. I love that. And town. I was hoping I, I hope he, he's got an accent, you know, I was like, I hope I've got a little bit of my Georgia accent going for the interview. So, <laughs> well, I, uh, I made a deal with my wife. Every time I'm around my grandmother or my mom, I get super country. I get like, 
like draw like yeah bad. and she's like please don't ever do that again I'm, I'm, <laughs> but yeah so yeah. I, I love Athens but essentially you went from Athens to like the one of the coolest towns in the whole nation you're you're out in Austin now aren't you yeah I'm in Austin and that's so awesome. that's kind of the reason I moved here is in my mind and I think it's I think it's correct that it was just a bigger Athens it had a big music yeah. scene live music yes. and the University of Texas is here and mm-hmm. I just needed a little more a little more space to breathe, I think, yeah. in this in the South. Yeah, well, and I I love Athens because it's a town for misfits, and mm-hmm. that's essentially what Austin is too. I mean, you have Joe yeah. Rogan out there. It's it's yeah. a town where where what's his name? The guy that we we laugh about that was on Joe Rogan, Jason. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. All right, all right, all right. Oh, oh Matthew, Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. Yeah, like where Matthew yeah. McConaughey could be the mayor one day. Like that's pretty yeah. sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's cool. So I actually, you know, Ginger, I actually grew up in Florida. So Mm. I grew up a gator Mm. Mm -hmm. and then moved to Georgia. (laughs) And in God's little sense of humor and um, the university system of Georgia and the lottery, Mm -hmm. Hope Scholarship, uh, my two older boys graduated from UGA. Yep. I used that Hope Scholarship myself. It's awesome. It's a great, it really is a great thing. It is. So yeah, uh, yeah, so we have. Uh, when I first moved here, I wouldn't even go to Athens. Like I, I didn't care anything about the town. Right. I want to go. Oh, to it's right such now. a great town. I've been to Athens so many times. I've, I've lost count. It mm-hmm. really is a great town. What was your favorite bar in Athens, Ginger? Mine was two eighty three. I don't know if it was around. Well, this kind of speaks to my old soul because I liked the Globe, which is. I don't know if it's not even a bar. It's kind of a more of a pub mm-hmm. and it, they had all these European beers and I just thought I was fancy and Michael Skype, <laughs> Michael Stipe, Skype, yeah, whatever, yeah. Michael Stipe. guy. Yeah, yeah. you see him there occasionally and I thought I was so fancy, you know, drinking some oh, European beer or something. Awesome. Awesome. Just walk up to him and say, is it the end of the world? <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll edit that out. That was stupid. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, what about Walker's Pub? Was it around whenever you were in Athens? Walker's Pub? What's, I don't know where that it's, was. Oh, it's an know? Irish pub mixed with coffee shop. That sounds great, but I don't it remember was, that. It was amazing. Or it yeah. is amazing. It's still there, thank goodness. Yeah. But, so you, uh, one of you is in Forsyth County, is that right? Yep, that's me. Okay. Because my sister lives there. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. So there's a really awesome brewery that she should check out called Nofo Brewery. It's in okay. North Forsyth. It's uh, is she living coming or is she South yep. Forsyth? Like where is she? Okay. She's, she's in coming and she's actually a school teacher there. So really, she's been teaching a long time. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Jason lives in Flowery Branch. So Wait, there's you- the Flowery Branch, Georgia. <laughs> Is there one in Texas as well? I thought there was, but maybe I'm getting them confused. Where's Flowery Branch? That would be very strange. So we're right on Lakeland here in okay. Hall County. Yeah. So our our claim, well, our claim yeah. is, yeah, just south of Gainesville. Um, Atlanta Falcons headquarters are here. Mm. Right. I mean, maybe a mile and a half or so from, nice. from where I live. Yeah. So uh, did, did you go to EMT school in Georgia or did you go Mm-mm. out in Texas? I started that whole bit here. Um, mm. I came out here and started grad school, actually, at the University of Texas. And wow. I ditched that. I was doing sociology, criminology stuff. Ditched that because Austin Travis County at the time had these amazing, huge international fr- freightliner, actually, 
uh, ambulances are freaking huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all my life I'd wanted to do EMS and I had just kind of pushed it to the side. Cause you know, I was kind of on this other track of PhD kind of academic stuff. Um, but once I got to grad school, I was like, this is not for me. And I had taken a year off between undergrad and grad school. And that's actually what kind of ruined me. I think I worked for FedEx for a year and I actually loved it. I love being out in the world, interacting with people, awesome. use my body, you know? Um, so I just jumped over from UT to Austin community college where I got my paramedic. So yeah, no EMS in Georgia at all. Although I talked to medics in Georgia. Oh yeah. I bet so. I bet so. Jason, where did you go to Texas tech? Yeah. Yeah. So I was out on the other side of the state yeah. out in uh, Lubbock. Yep. Um, so I went to school out there and then ended up in paramedic school as well. Nice. At Texas tech. How long did yeah. you live in Texas, Jason? Uh, we were out there for three years and that's where you met your wife. Uh, no, actually in Georgia before we went out there. Oh, gotcha. Cool. Y'all awesome. just getting to know each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're really not that close. It's by design. <laughs> awesome. So what, um, for the listeners who are listening, if, if you're listening to our podcast, then we know good and well, you have heard of our current guest and uh we know that you have listened to medic mindset so essentially like ginger you i i just want to say like i don't know if you'll take offense to this at all but it's i feel like you're the joe rogan of the ems podcast world like <laughs> like you have you you started it i mean you came out of the gate swinging and uh you know you kind of set the bar for all of us so what that means Tell a lot a, to, to hear you say that. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. Truly. Well, I mean, that's everybody, man, I'm telling you, everybody, everybody that I know of, I mean, everybody loves medic mindset. I love medic mindset. Um, what, what was it that got you started? What was it that made you say, you know what? I really want to do this. I think this is important. Mm -hmm. Um, because you did it way before it was the cool thing to do. Like you've been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you tell us a story about that? Yeah, I can definitely speak to that because I've been asked that before. And it's funny because every time I get asked, I think I give kind of a different answer. And I think that's because I think the decisions we make and our motivating forces are actually, it's usually not just one thing, right? It's not just like, oh, this happened and I knew I had to do this, right? It's usually like this amalgamation of of, of things that kind of all come together. Um, around that time, I was listening to a podcast. Podcasts were just kind of, I don't know, people were just starting to ask, you listen to podcasts, you should listen to this. People were starting to recommend them. And Tim Ferriss' podcast was mm. recommended to me. And I loved his format. And I, if you're, if the listener's not familiar with it, he does something really sim simple but genius. And that is he just talks to really, he calls them high performers, kind of um, extraordinary brains or athletes or kind of top performers in their field. And he picks diverse fields. Um, and, and what he says is that he dissects their habits and um, their life philosophies and um, ideologies and basically other tiny little minute processes that, and just in an attempt to provide the listener kind of mentors or role models. And so I thought, well, that'd be really cool just to transfer that and do that within EMS. And so that's, I think part of what people love about medic mindset is not me, but it's the guests. Like I work really hard to pick guests that are spectacular um, humans, um, people that are 
you know, that I know for a long time, you know, I don't, I would never just like interview someone and just throw them on there. Like it's usually from a long relationship that I've built and I, and I know what they believe in and what's important to them and their values. Um, so I think kind of that's been my secret sauce is the guest, honestly. Um, but what, but what brought me to that was really loving that podcast. I tried blogging for about a year and I hated it. Turn off this. Um, I hated writing. Was that a big thing back then when you were starting that? I mean, yeah. is that one of the reasons you did that? Everybody's kind of blogging. Yep. Yeah. And what I found was it was too easy for people to pick apart my words exactly as I'd written them and people would get kind of rhetorical and just ended up being like this battle of um, word choice instead of hearing like the mm. overarching message. And I think in the spoken word, people can just kind of hear my intent, right? They can hear my voice. They can hear my sincerity mm. versus a blog. People just sit there and like comb through it and just like punch holes in my, my theories and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, it's all about semantics mm -hmm. and just this kind of yeah. need to be right. That's or something. So I tried that for a year and it was just really unfun. And, um, I was like, huh, maybe I'll do the podcasting thing. Um, around that time, I was having graduates of the program I teach at a uh, Austin Community College. And I was having graduates come to me asking for advice and all this stuff. And I thought it would be kind of cool to get some people on here to mentor them, students or new graduates. Um, and then I just started loving it. Then I just started having fun with it and made some friends. Like, like you know, now you and I guys, you, you and us have made the connection. Um, started making friends like Tyler Christofoli with Foam Frat and Eric Bauer at Flight Bridge. And we all just kind of started. And then it became like all these artists just kind of talking to each other and making each other better and all that. Yeah, it is interesting at this. Um, I think, you know, what, what we found is that there's such an amazing collaboration with this. Um, and, you know, I think for, for people that are familiar with your podcast, you know, I'm so, I'm so happy to hear you say that, that your guests are intentional because they have so many similarities of um, not only competence, but humility. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's probably a, one of the biggest things that are lacking. You know, we, we have a, I don't know if I should publicize, say this publicly, but Brandon and I have started a, um, a pretty much a uh, philosophy and a standard of if you ask to be on our podcast, mm. the answer is no. Yeah. Like if you come to us and go, you, re I really, I have things that you really need to hear. Yeah. Um, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Because like you, like, and so I'm happy, so happy to hear you say that because, um, it is absolutely evident in your guests that there is a common thread, not only with your relationship with them, but with their mentality on, mm -hmm. on not just the profession, but just on, um, you know, their values as well. Mm -hmm. I think they all agree. I mean, at a base, they all agree that paramedics are clinicians, right? Not technicians. And there's, <laughs> there's a whole so kind good. of, I would say, you know, I, I couldn't list them off, but they're probably four to five things messaging that I'm really trying to just keep hitting people with, keep hitting people with an attempt to change the culture. Uh, I'm never expecting that, you know, any podcast or any one person could change the culture 90 degrees or 180 degrees, but I can just like move it just a little bit. Um, I'll feel like I've kind of given back to the profession. Yeah, well, and that's that's the beautiful thing about it, though, is because if you move it a little bit, 
Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who wrote the book Atomic Habits, mm-hmm. but he he uses an analogy. He references a plane leaving Washington State, and if the nose of the plane just moves three degrees to the mm-hmm. right, by the time you end up across the country, you end up in Carolina, in one of the Carolinas instead of New York City. So the fact that you're moving the needle a little bit, hopefully years from now, it's going to have a huge impact. So. That's a great visual. That's a perfect visual. And that's the, that's well, the third it. time that book has come up <laughs> for me in the last seven days. It's so good. It is so I've good. I've not read if, it. If, but... if you, and well, and he narrates the audiobook as well. Though. And that's, I love whenever authors narrate the audiobooks mm-hmm. because they, uh, uh, Colin Jost, very punchable face. That's another one you need to listen to. All it's right. very funny. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, but yeah, Atomic Habits, it's uh, it's fantastic. Well, tell us a little bit about your um, your day job. I yeah. teach, yeah. My day job is, oh man, I couldn't ask for a better day job. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Did I make a face? <laughs> no, it's just like, you could tell that you enjoy it. You could really tell that you enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, I, I tell people I'm going to keep doing it until one day I'm just sitting at my desk and I just turned to ash you know i'm just gonna <laughs> die doing it hopefully they'll keep me that long um so what happened to the I'm, guy brandon replaced yeah, yeah pretty much pretty much so i teach paramedics at austin community college i'm on the full-time faculty that's my main focus you know all day long and that's a huge deal i mean that's that is huge because austin has recently been the hub for a lot of groundbreaking treatments i mean blood in the field i mean Mm -hmm. so much and you get to be part of that yeah it's a really great place and i had no idea when i got into ems here that i was somewhere kind of unique Mm -hmm. um i could have just as easily been anywhere um but texas the whole state's kind of unique in that it has it's called a delegated practice state where medics um any out-of-hospital provider can um, their scope can be whatever the medical director deems is appropriate. So That's fantastic. It is. I think it, I think it does help kind of push along and, and show the country or the world kind of what paramedics are capable of doing, like blood products, for example. Yeah. In fact, we just um, are right in the middle of a pilot study um, in the state of Georgia with uh, the, the region that Brandon and I are, are both in and to get to the point of giving blood, there was a lot of hoops to jump through, but it was mm-hmm. always going back. There was actually uh, several people that kind of formulated it, went to the people in Austin mm-hmm. and pretty mm-hmm. much was, you know, tell us how you're doing it, how you started it. Um, and uh, it became very clear at the beginning that this this was where we needed to get our information. These are the people that did it well and how we can model it. Yeah, and for anybody listening, I want to be um, just a fine tune us a little bit it's not that actually the city of austin doing blood products it's south of here san antonio okay um oh okay but gotcha. it's still gotcha. it's still central texas yeah. um mm-hmm. so our you know our graduates go work there and we're kind of all influencing each other but we've right. like north of here we've got uh, williamson county ems which uh, maybe your listeners have heard of dr jeff jarvis who does a lot of airway oh, yeah. stuff mm-hmm. um, so it's just kind of all around here really good um honestly it's really good medical direction that's where it's probably started. It's just great medical directors. Well, and the uh, militaries isn't mm-hmm. AMED based out of there. Or I don't know what AMED is. It's the the Army Medical something education. So and uh, also, yes. is it Fort Sam Houston? 
yeah, that's all San Antonio. Yeah, big, so, I mean, big medical Texas center. Is, yeah, Texas is a great hub for EMS, it seems. Mm -hmm. So what type of students do you teach? Are, are they, um, do, do the EMS services have their own programs and you guys are filling in the gaps or are you the hub of paramedic education? I think we are filling in some gaps. So Austin Travis County EMS does have its own paramedic program. So people can get hired as an EMT and um, be employed there while they become paramedics, which is a great deal. Uh, if I think if I were doing it, I might strongly consider that. Um, we teach, it's a community college, so it's open doors, right? Anybody that's usually not employed. We have a few students, maybe a quarter of them that are working somewhere in the field. Um, but no, we're not affiliated with any particular employer or anything like that. Now, is there a, uh, out in Georgia, what has happened recently, Jason, I correct me if I'm wrong. I guess it's been over the past five to 10 years, almost all of the community colleges were essentially gobbled up by the university system and mm -hmm. the technical college system of Georgia replaced the community colleges. So essentially now at a technical college, you can get an associate degree. Mm -hmm. um, we cannot offer bachelor's degrees. Um, but essentially I think that is a similar model to what we have here in Georgia. We have the technical college system of Georgia, which has all of the paramedic programs. I don't think that there's a four-year college in Georgia with a paramedic program. Is there Jason? Uh, no, not yet. I don't believe yeah, so that's pretty similar to us. You know, it's never occurred to me that Georgia didn't have community colleges, but as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, it's all tech. They call them technical colleges. Good yeah. point. <clears throat> I went to uh, Gainesville Community College back in the day. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> this is like most of them have been absorbed. So, so yeah. let me go. Let me go back to kind of. Um, so, so that's what you do during the day. Um, mm -hmm. Do you still? Uh, work in ems i mean do you ride on an ambulance or i do or not so i'm i the, the closest i get kind of where i satisfy that uh kind of need because i think we all still want that direct patient care oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, i mean it's the reason we started doing it right um that and that kind of reason doesn't go away um is we do clinical rotations and we are really lucky at our college that we precept our students in the ER. So they don't just go in and get attached to, you know, any old tech or nurse. Like we are facilitating their educational experience for uh, six hours. I take two students and we just rotate around and look for uh, interesting cases, start IVs, do assessments. I give them feedback right there at the bedside. So um, that's where I kind of still get my, you know, mm. that face to face with sick and injured people. So if you get a good, level one trauma or something along those lines, you still kind of get you, you know, get to get your hands dirty a little yeah. bit. That's yeah. I've awesome. learned so much in the hospital. Yes. It's, it's been, uh, I've realized what, how much I didn't know oh about gosh. what happens later, you know? <laughs> and that's so important. And Jason's, Jason's about to jump through the, jump through the ceiling because he's all about systems of care and which mm. is great. It's fantastic. Um, but before he starts asking you about that, I want to ask, um, how big are your cohorts? Like what, what size of a class will you have? Because that's got to be a pretty, you know, talking about the co-amps accreditation standards and things like that, you know, having that one-on-one -on -one time with them, taking two students at a time, that's a big, that's a lot of, that's work. That is a lot of work. Yeah, the college is really generous with our department. I know we lose money. I, I, I know our department loses money because we have all this consumables in the lab and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, um, 
you know, you think about these history professors that are teaching a hundred people at once, that that's where they're getting their revenue back. But with our department, they have been very uh, generous and just like meeting the community needs. I think um, we're a faculty, full-time faculty of 10. Um, what? But, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. What? <laughs> I could have left that part out. Oh no, no, say it again, because I'm bringing this to my Dean, to the president of my college. Everything's oh. bigger in Texas. Oh maybe, my gosh. Maybe we need to leave Including that part your out. faculty. Holy so what is God. your, <laughs> what's your instructor to student ratio? Do you, do you I'm, go I'm not going to answer oh, any more questions. This is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. Before so you do, answer you, that. do you go by a ratio though? Is that how you choose how many full-time faculty you have? Yes. So that's in the awesome. lab, we're five to one, you know, in the lab. That's great. That's perfect. That's uh, ideal. That's ideal. That's ideal. Yeah. I think that's what accreditation actually recommends in the co-amp standards, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, and I've, I I yeah. talked to educators all over the country and um, EMS educators because I've done some like pre-conference courses for educators and, you know, I realize how good I have it after talking to people about, especially their kind of lab resources and it just seems like uh a lot we need to be investing more in ems education oh lord say it again yeah so traditionally we don't work in systems of care we work in silos right you know so yeah. ems is taught especially you know we take the idea the example of acls where we teach an eight in eight in um, ems for the first 30 minutes of the code get a pulse back your job's done um but as uh paramedic students especially emt students are able to work in the hospital or on that definitive care side, what are some of the things that that you do to bring them into that environment where they truly understand the decisions and the treatments they do in the field are going to affect how the patient is assessed and treated in the ED, maybe in cardiology, maybe in um, surgery for trauma, um, and uh, you know things like that. How do you? How do you hate help facilitate that? Well, we get to be there for six hours with these patients and often. So we get to see how their um, care evolves. And sometimes EMS will bring in a patient and the patient doesn't look that sick to them, just kind of view from the door, general impression. And then the patient ends up in ICU because they have sepsis or DKA, although DKA looks pretty sick. Um, but it's neat for them to have that experience to watch patients not really evolve, but for as they start doing these assessments and start getting back blood labs a lot of the time, um, they realize just how sick these people are. But what your question was, was you said something about how what they do affects the in-hospital assessment and treatment. So not just treatment, but their assessment. Yes. And I spend a lot of time talking about cognitive biases and how we can be very careful about how we present the patient to the facility, the, you know, the receiving nurse, doctor, how you can help them think through cases by not um, kind of biasing them or um, it's just the, the language that you use it just, it starts a whole path down. They, they say geography is destiny in medicine in terms of in the hospital. So where a patient gets triage, which part of the ER, it can kind of just certain, you know, clinicians, physicians know that these rooms are used or lower acuity. These are the higher acuity patients and they just can't get out of that frame. They can't reframe it. And so 
we start the frame when we hand off a patient. So we talk a lot about um, cognitive biases and how to help downstream uh, clinicians um, come in with an open slate, but also, um, you know, how to keep those differentials broad and things like that in the undifferentiated patients. Well, that's good. I, I don't know that I've heard that put that way, but that is, uh, that is so important. Mm -hmm. And then we, um, we see a lot of psych patients, right? I mean, that's what emergency medicine has become a lot of is that safety net for psych patients. And so there's a lot of education about, um, again, you know, cognitive biases and how uh, people often have, you know, a psych component, but that is not their main problem today. It's something uh, medical or physiological. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just, I'm not shy about getting them in there to assess the patients that have a little bit of a psych component to go along with their um, disease process. Absolutely. What, in in your position as an educator, um, what, and, and I, to kind of preface this question, COVID has brought this to my appreciation so much more than what I had it before. What is the impact that you feel of the clinical setting and of the lab setting on the overall outcome of the student's education? You know, of, of, of how well they retain things. You know, we, we had to adapt in Georgia to where we were online only for months, mm -hmm. months and yeah, months us and too. months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had no idea how to do that because I have to have a dry erase board. Mm -hmm. if, if, if I don't have a dry erase board, I'm paralyzed because I draw everything. I do not like PowerPoint. Um, and I just, I draw right. And I couldn't do that. My students couldn't put hands on mm -hmm. and it was awful. So what do you see that clinical is irreplaceable? Do you think it's just a piece of it? How important do you find that clinical experience to be for the overall education of the students? I have a lot of comments. I wrote down two, so I wouldn't forget them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, that was a long question. Well, I'm just, I'm my brain's just, um, this is where we've been right for the last year. And so these have been my thoughts and they've been evolving over the year too. At first I thought like, no, we're fine. You know, we can do this and mm -hmm. we'll do simulated case studies and things like that. Um, I think simulation done well can prepare paramedics to, a, to, they can get them really far down the road when it comes to decision-making, um, simulation done well. Right. And I, yes. I honestly, I don't think many people are, and probably myself included, like we're just not doing simulation as well as we could be. Cause it takes a lot of work. Um, I mean, there's a lot of preparation to go into it to do it well, like you're saying. It does. And the students yes. can see and feel the difference. Yeah. Um, we delayed graduate graduation for students because we couldn't get them what they needed in the lab in their clinical rotation. So um, we believe they, they have to have that, right? They've got to have these patient encounters, um, the internship, all of that. That's where stuff really, really comes together. 
and I see it over and over again, we're a five semester program. And in fifth semester is when honestly, it just gets put together because they do 240 hours on an ambulance and things we've been telling them and showing them in lab and all this stuff until they see it and do it for themselves. Uh, it really just doesn't solidify. And so I honestly think that paramedics should have a residency the way um, mm. physicians do. I think we should absolutely, the things that are asked of paramedics, and we, hopefully we'll get to this, because um, it's a big part of why I do medic mindset, is I think we are causing a tremendous amount of psychological harm by the education is not enough to prepare paramedics for what they are asked to do. There's a mismatch oh, in it. Amen. There's a mismatch. Um, and there's a, there's a psychological theory about this, that what causes stress is when the demands exceed the resources. And, um, that is the case every single time. And it's certainly a new paramedic goes out on a call. They do not have the resources. They just don't, um, they want to, and educators, are doing their best. Um, but it's just not enough. They're working independently. They're not, um, whether they have online medical control or whatever, it doesn't matter. They're independent. They're literally alone. Um, and it causes psychological harm. That is so incredibly go ahead. Go ahead. Go let ahead. me, let me just throw out, let me, let me just kind of, and, and maybe this will transition us a, a little bit where uh, I, I personally want to go with the, kind of continuing educate continued education. Um, but I want to throw out kind of a statement that's going to be pretty controversial. Um, a complaint that technical schools, community colleges, anything tied to a college university setting are training paramedics or educating paramedics to too high of a level. We are going overboard with what they need to do to know and the time it takes to educate them. You, you mentioned you do five semesters mm -hmm. or, or five, is it? Yeah, it's um, five. It's, it's a two year associate's degree, okay. five semesters. Okay. And they, they come in as EMTs. Okay. So they come That's in great. as EMTs. So um, if you could just, you know, kind of top of your head, you know, we didn't, we didn't prepare this for you, but mm -hmm. there, there are a lot, I think throughout the country of, we take too much time to train and educate paramedics and we are educating them at too high of a level in order to work on an ambulance. So the, I'll be honest with you, this is not kind of what you're saying is not kind of the culture that I'm around where people are That's saying good. that they're, they're saying that we spend too much time. They're overly educated for what they they're need to be doing. Mm-hmm. I guess it comes down to what does the public want? You know, what do they want from us? And if they want clinicians to show up to their house for a, you know, basically a house call to help them figure out which hospital to go to or what's wrong with them, you know, that's pretty high level, right? To make these met, help them right. make them help them make these medical decisions. And that's more and more of what EMS has become with mobile integrated health and community paramedicine. They're mm. going to people's homes, doing a very uh, advanced, pretty high level assessment with pretty advanced tools like, EKGs, point of care ultrasound, yes, um, point of care labs, things like that to make these um, really important decisions about what hospital or often not a hospital um, mm. for the patient to go to more and more. Great point. Um, so I think you're, you're asking me to speak to those people that are saying that kind of 
hey, we're we're overdoing it here. We need to back off. Yeah, well, yeah and, I, and, and not even the public. Um, mm -hmm. Services, you know, paramedic shortages. Hey, we've got paramedic shortages around the country, and it's taking two years to turn out paramedics. I don't need someone that's a quasi doctor. I just need somebody mm -hmm. that can put somebody mm -hmm. in the back of the ambulance and take them. Yeah. You know, that that's what, and it's not, you know, I'm not even going to pick on where we are now. I, I have a lot of conversations with people around the country, and this is unfortunately a direction that a lot of services are going. You know, we're so short staffed, and if you're going to mm -hmm. take two years to turn out a paramedic, I would much rather have someone go through a program that's a condensed six month because in my estimation as an employer, I'm getting the same level of employee. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you from experience, I'm getting pressure. I'm getting pressure to pump them out in three semesters, you know, and, mm -hmm. and to what Jason's saying, we've actually had that comment. You know, we've had people say, well, you teach them too much. Can you not just teach an ambulance track? And then a hospital track, and I'm just like, no. <laughs> well, no, it all because... comes comes back to compensation, right? So, yeah, it all comes back to revenue. And so, uh, luckily, what's happened, and uh, I imagine you guys are familiar with ET3, where they've they've said like we can now begin to reimburse uh, ambulance services for care, even when you don't transport, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that's that turned a, a whole, that turned the industry to where as long as the public wants it, as long as there's a, a demand by the public that they want people showing up at their home to help them make these decisions, then um, hopefully we can get reimbursed, and that would translate to higher pay and um, drive the whole thing right, where we they can spend more on their education and pay them better. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I, you know, so that kind of uh, my question that segues into something that you are doing that is unique. Um, and especially people like Foam Frat, Fl um, Flight Bridge. Um, and this is what we're finding with, uh, you know, the project that we're working on is that people are hungry for that higher level, that we seem to have this mentality not just in EMS, but in healthcare, that everything we need to know, we learned in school. And then once I graduate, I am now a competent provider at the top of my game. And then you get start to realize, well, like you said, you, you, you turn out a paramedic and all of a sudden they're stressed out because they really don't have all the tools they need to run all these calls. And then you talk to somebody, you know, a veteran, if you've you know, we tell students this all the time. If you're, if you're the same paramedic in 10 years as you are today, when you graduate, you've you've missed out. Um, but we haven't helped ourselves very well, in my estimation, in EMS with continuing with continuing education, with what's that higher level. You know, everybody's got a second job. It's difficult. And so now we have these platforms. And that's why I personally am so appreciative, you know, Ginger, of what you're doing is because you're offering some of these things. So can you speak to um, kind of what motivated you to kind of go to that level and kind of be able to, you know, do you shy away from kind of the, the deeper things or do you kind of just really go after it? Do you temper the guests that you have? Or do you just kind of go full throttle? Um, it's interesting. I, at the beginning, when I first started, I thought I was talking to 
paramedic students and recently graduated paramedics. But then what happened was the vet, like, like you said, the, the kind of veteran providers that were hungry started listening. And I started realizing by interacting with them on, on Facebook and um, emails and stuff, I started realizing like these listeners, like they know a lot and they want <laughs> to know, they want to know it all. Right. Like, it's like, why, yeah. why would we limit what they know? And so I got some guests on and I started doing this thinking series um, where I basically just take a chief complaint and talk to usually physician level provider about how they think about think through that chief complaint. And one of the first ones I did was with Dr. Pickett and he didn't hold back. He was talking to me about, you know, all kinds of stuff. I was, I was literally at times like on recording and I left it in there, like, hang on. Like, I don't know that. I don't know what you're saying. Like teach That's me. Awesome. Um, and he just talked like he would talk to a colleague and he just assumes that it's perfectly fine for a paramedic to know these things. Uh, I don't know that that answers your question, but that's kind of the journey I went on of realizing um, that there are, I, what you said about there's hungry paramedics really wanting to know more. That really resonated with me when you said that because they're medic mindset listeners. No, yeah, that's exactly, that was exactly where I was headed. I was headed with that. And, and I think we under, we underestimate paramedics and I think paramedics underestimate themselves mm -hmm. with what they're able um, to grasp and understand. You can run most EMS calls, not knowing much. <laughs> yeah. But an ER doc can run, can, can see 90% yeah. of their patients without needing really probably even to be a doctor. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> but it's those nuances those you know this is uh, probably another direction we could head on als versus bls and right who need, what, what what calls need a paramedic and which calls don't and mm -hmm. that's a pretty sore subject with oh me. man that reminds me of the last um thinking series episode i did it was about lift assist and maya dorsett talked about how it is paradoxical that we send bls to the lift assist calls because lift mm -hmm. assist is where you actually have an undifferentiated patient that needs a comprehensive full body system assessment you know yep like why are they on the no, floor and but, can't but get up? see you're wrong als doesn't have anything to do with the assessment it's it's an als skill <laughs> did you give a medication or did you prevent did you do a skill if you didn't do that then they didn't need a paramedic if you didn't put them on the monitor it's not als that's mm -hmm. right it's not als but we're still yeah uh. <laughs> But that's why it goes back to that. And, you know, you just so beautifully laid out that bias thing um, that I've never really considered uh, before, um, uh, except, you know, literally, this is so crazy. I literally just having a conversation today. We, uh, we had a, a meeting at our hospital. Uh, it was a STEMI meeting. And we were reviewing a case where the patient took, it, it was like an hour before they got an EKG in the hospital on, mm -hmm. a, on a difficulty breathing. And the hospital's thing was, well, EMS didn't do an EKG, so we didn't do an EKG. Mm. And EMS is <laughs> like, well, why didn't you do an EKG? Oh, because you didn't. And it just went back and forth. And really, it turns out, hey, you know, EMS, if he had just done an EKG, he, because you didn't, the ED didn't have a heightened sense of awareness. Right. And there was a bias against that patient because oh, of yeah. that. So that's... It's very you know, real. And it's and I want to be clear that it's not character flaw. It's just how no. our human brains are are wired right? These are good people trying to make the best decisions all day long. Um, but we are 
it's called triage cueing is the name for that phenomenon, particular phenomenon, but we're just wired, right? To it's inertia. It's called diagnostic momentum. It just kind of keeps going and building on itself. Sure. And there's sense of urgency. There's no sense of urgency in your mm -hmm. voice that doesn't create a sense of urgency in others. And if you downplay things, it gets downplayed, yeah. um, which is just all the more reason the importance of that first medical contact, the, the importance of EMS. And we think, oh, we just deliver people to the hospital and then they restart that assessment when in fact, no, they're continuing that assessment based on what you've done. Yeah, you got it. So on the note of the content that you use or that you, that you have on uh, medic mindset, one of the first times I ever listened to one of your episodes, what hooked me was your focus on vulnerability was your focus. You asked your guest, I can't remember her name. It was one of the early episodes. I think she was a friend of yours. You worked on an ambulance together. You asked her what was what was one of her biggest mistakes she had ever made, or I can't remember exactly how the question was worded, but essentially you shared together, uh, you know, not your worst call as a, par a paramedic, but what was one time where you made a mistake? Mm -hmm. And I was hooked. I was like, finally, finally, somebody is talking about, you know what? We're not perfect. You know what? We do. We are, we have to be vulnerable. We have to, uh, we have to connect with our feelings. We have to connect with each other. And, um, you know, what, what was it about vulnerability in particular that, that you found important? Um, well, you told me in advance, we were going to talk about vulnerability and I appreciate you telling me because I've, <clears throat> as a consequence, I've kind of spent the whole day thinking about it and kind of remembering vulnerability and, you can't say the word vulnerability without talking about this amazing woman, Brene Brown. Um, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. She is a psychologist and she's also a podcaster now, by the way. Um, and she studied not vulnerability, but she studied shame as, as a PhD psychologist. She's at the university of Houston and she studied shame and how harmful it is for our health and relationships. And it's kind of like shame is like the worst human emotion you can experience. Really. It's pretty, pretty dreadful. Uh, and we all know it. Um, and she says that vulnerability is the antidote to that. And what she means by that is, I think this is what I think she means is that if you can kind of own Right. If you can own and be transparent and open about uh, the things that you think would be unpalatable or unacceptable to others, if you can risk sharing that stuff with others, and then they keep, they stay, they stay, they don't run away. Um, what you've built is intimacy as a result of that. And so um, I think with podcasting, it's important to differentiate, however, the difference between being confessional and being vulnerable. So mm. my guests, um, are sometimes anonymous. And I bet the one that you um, heard was anonymous because in the first year I made them almost all anonymous because I wanted them to speak freely. Um, oh, now we may, have, we, we may have um, said that we were friends and I, you know, I may have said, you know, somebody that works locally, but um, the only people that would really know them are people that knew their voice. And so that doesn't mean that they weren't being vulnerable because they still had me listening and they still had 
people they work with probably listening because um, probably most of my listeners are in Texas because they know me. Um, but if I say stuff to you right now, technically it's a little bit more confessional because I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I hope we become friends, but vulnerability is actually showing yourself to people that you need and you really hope keep showing up, right? It's the, it's the coworkers that you're going to see every shift. It's your family in particular, um, extended and, and nuclear family. Um, but it's this idea of we can experience joy and intimacy if we just share our true story. And um, because in EMS, the two partners or within a system, you know, within a service, there's so there's got to be so much intimacy. Like we know each other, like they become family, right? Um, and what people do, we're all, every single one of every single paramedic is experiencing shame because they know they mess up on occasion. They miss a set, you know, they miss an assessment. They um, have true medical errors, which are very actually common in emergency medicine because it's kind of an error prone environment. It's high speed, low data, like people are making errors. Um, and so if you can develop the culture where people are talking about it, it's just more joyful and intimate, honestly, and there's less shame. The trick is someone has to go first. Mm. Somebody's got to go first. And so when I've interviewed guests, I'll often go first. Sometimes I edit that out later <laughs> because I don't necessarily, I'm not, it's not about me, right? It's not about my story. It's about the guest story for the listener. Um, but if you're brave enough to go first, those around you will start following suit, hopefully, because they realize you're a safe person. You're like if you can, you can share this thing. Um, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, you too? Good. I thought I was the only one. Awesome. Awesome. Now, and when you, um, so you've, you've got my head, you got my, you have my wheels spinning about vulnerability versus confession. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't, I've never really considered that before. Now, as an instructor, um, and and I want to thank you for this because honestly, that's where I began sharing my mistakes with my students. You know, mm -hmm. I started saying, especially during their senior semesters, whenever we start, but because now I have a lab station set up to where we, we have different rotations, you know, in our lab setting, not clinical. And uh, we just started one to where we'll sit down with a group and then we'll say, okay, well, let's talk about this call. Now that you see the big picture of things, where this could be a basic call, you just follow your protocol and you actually cause harm because you followed the protocol to a T. Um, I'm able to share my mistakes that I've had in the past now. And I feel like that that opens the students up to connect more. I feel like they share more stories because all of my students are currently working in the field. Uh, most of them have three to five years of experience and they either share a scene where they said, Hey, yeah, I didn't realize what was going on at the time, but now I do. Or yes, I made this mistake in the past. Um, do you, do you utilize that as a tool as an instructor as well, or an educator as well? I do once I've established uh, credibility with them. So I would not do that in the first semester because they don't know me yet. And so I first need them to recognize me as, a, you know, 
uh, someone who knows what the hell she's doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but as they near graduation, I start telling them, um, I've got two or three kind of cases that I tell them about where I just, I messed up. And uh, they've been on enough rides by then that they're, they have some compassion for me. They've, they don't have this idea, you know, ideal that all paramedics are perfect anymore. Um, so the timing is important, I think. Mm. And that, I, I think that goes back to this. I want to make sure the listeners understand what I'm saying about this confessional bit. If I were to walk in early when they're first in school and I just start telling them about all my bad calls, that's confessional in the sense that it's just me getting it off my chest. It's almost like therapy for me. And it's not really, it's not timed right to when they would need that info. Um, It's just me just like, I need to tell you all this just to get it off my chest. Um, Vulnerability is sharing unsavory things with people that you are in a relationship with and it will help either the relationship or them. It's definitely not about yourself. Um, so when I, when I share these cases, I know my heart's pure in the sense that this isn't free therapy for ginger. This is, I really want them to either avoid this error or I want them to mostly understand that errors are going to occur and how I hope that they have compassion with themselves around it and um, openness about it just to own it. Do you find that timing, timing is key for vulnerability. Mm. It doesn't make sense to do it too early in a relationship. That is such a good point. Do you see any difference in um, any groups of people where this is more difficult than others? Well, I think the new provider has trouble with this because it is much safer to think that they won't make errors and have that hope for themselves and then when they hear that others have, it's they want to convince themselves that they could never do that. And so they're judgmental towards the person who did, right? It's just protective mechanisms. Um, you know, it's easy to split groups into male, female, but I think it's, I don't know that it's really uh, gendered. I've one on one, I've had men and women equally be able to be vulnerable one on one. What about your fire department based paramedic student versus just a regular, you know, EMS or hospital based paramedic student? Do you see a difference there? A difference in, I don't want to go back to make sure I'm answering the right question, a difference in how vulnerable they're able to be. Yes. Yes. And I'll just, you know, I'll just say it. Um, I find most of the time my fire department based students have more of a shell put a, or a, mm-hmm. a shield rather. I don't, I don't know what their correct term is for mm-hmm. it. Uh, maybe a facade rather to where it's like, Oh, just tough it out. You know, just be tough. You know? Yeah. We ha- we ran this horrible call the other night, but whatever, I'm fine. Uh, versus, you know, the hospital or private service students are typically more open to sharing. That's just my own anecdotal experience. I don't know if you've seen anything like that before. Most of the, most of our students are, I don't have a, and I'm not trying to dodge your question, but I just don't have good sample sizes. Most of our students are civilians. They just walk in with no experience oh, wow. and they're not affiliated with fire EMS. Um, I know what you're talking about though, because I worked in the field. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I think a lot of people are just trying to keep their shit together because they know other people are counting on them to keep their shit together. And they don't want to just, if they just, if there's any cracks, like everybody might start cracking. I think they're, I think they're doing, I think they think they're doing right by keeping that facade going because, you know, there's people following them or like, you know, they're leading or something. And, um, So on that note of leadership, I mean, how, how important do you think it is of a leader to be vulnerable with their people? You know, like you said, I, I think this is a new, I think you brought up a very good point and timing is crucial. Mm-hmm. But if you are a leader of people, whether you're an educator and you have a group of students that you're leading through a cohort, or you're in the station, you're, you're a battalion chief or a captain, so on and so forth, and you have a group of people, how important is vulnerability in that situation? in your mind? I think it's important to develop the relationship, right? It's, it's, it's integral. It's integral for the relationship building. There are moments, however, when you definitely don't need to be honest about how you're feeling in that moment, given the nature of our job, right? So you do not want, um, the leader that's having some trepidation about their decision or wavering on their decision. They're not quite sure to, you know, communicate that. I'm really not sure. I don't know. You know? Um, so you, you do want, um, somebody that can make decisions and, um, adjust those decisions later if they need to be, but confidently make those decisions. And then perhaps later though, the timing again, later, you know, tell them like, I tried to make the best decision I could. I, it was it was a difficult one at the time. I wasn't un, I wasn't sure at the time. How did I do? You know, asking for the feedback and things like that. Um, but I do, I'm sure I think it's difficult for leaders to balance that because they know a lot of people are looking, literally looking at them, to be standing, sure. And in a culture where vulnerability can be seen as weakness, mm-hmm. I think too is. But, um, but you bring up a good point that, um, you know, certainly in the moment, there are certain times where you just not leave, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the story of the, you know, the pirate captain that wears the, the red shirt. So when he gets stabbed, they don't see the blood and know he's hurt. And, you know, for the same reason, he's, he wears the brown pants. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's, let's bring this around. Let's bring this around to this. What do you see as the future for keeping sharp people in EMS? How do we challenge our best and our brightest beyond the initial education to continue this profession forward? It's a good question, Jason. That's a good question. (laughs) Because you guys in Georgia have particularly a big shortage. Yeah, we do. It's pretty, it's Um, pretty scary to be honest. It was Natalie Zink that taught me that. I didn't quite realize what a kind of problem that was. Yeah. And even there, now you take one of your best and your brightest and it's a great thing. She's moving on to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a great win for, um, for us, but how do you take the people that don't necessarily take that opportunity and keep them in this profession and mentor people and continue to move the profession forward. I think, I, I think you already know what I'm going to say. 
listen to your podcast, right? Is that the... <laughs> definitely not that? <laughs> that might tide them over for maybe a day and make them feel good for a day, but it is not a permanent solution yeah. to a pretty big problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it may make them feel good for a bit, but um, what people want these high performers, how to keep them is you get it's just like they're like a dog with a bone, like you just have to keep challenging them and allowing them to level up, level up, level up. And in, in my opinion, this needs to be through a clinical track, right? Mm. The, the way you level up in EMS is you enter management, maybe education, but you know, maybe you become an FTO or something like that. Um, but it just kind of stops there, right? So I think Austin Travis County, honestly, has done something pretty darn cool where they have these they've got six levels of providers oh that is great yeah explain, mm -hmm. explain those, that because i've heard this but but go through those very you know quickly but let people sure know I, can, I, I can't do it the, i don't work for them and i don't know a hundred percent how it, how it works but yeah, but just the progression you know, of where you can go sure you've got like emt aemt then you've got paramedic and they're you know two or three different uh scopes the paramedics are working under based on, wow. you know, advancing That's their huge. education and what they can do. Be. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so I think these kind of, and obviously they're compensated for that. Right. So these, these, the ability to level up clinically, I think is what a lot of people are hungry for, right. They want to be good at medicine. They got into medicine, but currently the only existing structure for in most places is like, you just become the commander or you become the shift supervisor or whatever. Um, and that's not what they're hungry for. That doesn't satisfy that. They want to be great clinicians. That's a great point. They promote administratively versus clinically. Mm -hmm. Man, that's fantastic. That's what I wanted. I mean, that's, yeah. I would have loved that. It just doesn't, didn't and doesn't really exist. It's absolutely true. That's why people go to flight medicine or critical care kind of stuff is that they want to know more and they uh, right now, that's kind of considered the the more. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. We we work in an area where um, several of the hospitals have finally figured out that paramedics are very useful inside of hospitals, mm -hmm. and um, you know it's a it's a double edged sword because we take our best and our brightest and we move them into hospitals and pay them well, mm -hmm. but then we take them out of the field. Yep. Mm -hmm. And if had they been left and I don't think it's all, you know, we can have a whole discussion about money and, and, you know, money's a temporary fix and people, you know, search after that. But ultimately that's not why someone goes to a, goes to a place or leaves a place. It's mm -hmm. rarely ever about, um, about money. It's usually about opportunities and challenges. And, you know, once you've plateaued and you can't go anywhere, then you're going to be, you know, just by nature, um, looking at something, uh, something else. So I, I think you're exactly right. If we can, um, you know, and I know this is why we embarked on this project is, uh, you know, I actually had a paramedic student one time when I was um, lecturing in Brandon's class. And he said, hey, what this is several years ago, like, where do you go to get kind of your higher level stuff? And I'm like, well, Google and, <laughs> you know, that's pretty much, you know, just something comes to mind. I go Google it like. Well, and you were fortunate enough too to work in a critical care area. Right. I and mean, you were working in the cath lab with the most brilliant cardiologist in the state. So, yeah. So we had an avenue to kind of bring that 
to EMS and EMS to them. And it kind of really, it really helped that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really appreciative, um, you know, to what you're doing in foam fret and, and some of those that are able to kind of bring in that higher level without any apology, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, okay, we're going to dump, let's dumb this down for paramedics. Like, no, mm -hmm. let's teach us at a really high level and have people, you know, people will surprise you. Oh, yeah. um, that they can really come up to, to certain things. And then, um, actually we're working on a brand and I are working on a paper right now. It's some pretty, pretty difficult things with, uh, pressure volume loops and it's not an easy concept, but once you get it, it really opens your mind to things. So, you know, we want to expose paramedics to things, to things like that, um, without any kind of apologies. Mm -hmm. I think that's key, right? The, without apologies. Uh, on this last episode I did, uh, I referenced it earlier with Maya Dorset, this lift assist one. She talked about the harms of transporting patients. And I thought to myself, oh my God, like, can I, can I, can I publish that? Can paramedics hear that there's a potential harm causing, uh, caused to a patient by transporting them to the hospital? Are medical directors going to be angry that I'm publishing something like this? Like, am I going to get a lot of feedback, you know? And it, so what I did is I just asked her, I was like, hey, when you say that, are you worried that paramedics listening might misunderstand your kind of core concept here? And she, she was like, nope, I assume they can understand it the way I understand it. That's you know? great. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, and kind of on that note, what is the, what do you foresee you know, I consider you a visionary because like I said, you, you started off the podcasting and kind of the mobile platform um, before anybody did. So what do you see as the next step? I mean, as, as of right now, the podcast world is, it's, it's great. It's very saturated. We have so many, so many podcasts now. I mean, so many so many <laughs> yeah. yeah the pandemic uh, really gave people yes. too much time on their hands yes in fact i was trying to get an interface for for our project and, and my buddy at guitar center he was just like dude everybody's recording their albums now <laughs> <laughs> he said everybody's becoming a pro musician during the pandemic but mm -hmm. you know what what do you foresee um, is it live stream lectures? Is it, uh, podcasting to continue growing or more of a YouTube platform? I mean, what, what do you foresee as the future in, in, in the continuing education slash social media? Because that's essentially what this is. You're, you're blending two worlds. You're blending a social concept with the ability to learn from it which makes it beautiful because you get to see the relationship. You get to develop the relationship and you get to feel the chemistry. Do you see this just staying and just growing or do you see an evolution coming? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't thought about that much, kind of the future. And I appreciate you calling me visionary. Um, I think a lot of people have been educators, particularly been treading water this year, just to kind of like figure out <laughs> how to deliver education. <laughs> So I did kind of hit pause in terms of thinking like, what can we do next? Um, but, you know, earlier, um, I think Jason, you talked about silos and I think that's the, the most amazing thing that's come out of, um, 
this kind of social education or whatever you want to call it is that now I have access and you guys do too. And so do the listeners, they have access to the minds of kind of the best in, in emergency medicine. Whereas before, uh, this is kind of interesting. So Jeff Jarvis, who's the medical director up in Williamson County, um, just the next county up, tons of our graduates go work there, but he's just an airway genius, international airway genius. Um, I didn't interact with him that much and he wasn't that far away from me. It wasn't until we mm. both got on Twitter that I started interacting with him. Um, so I think what the beauty of all of this is that it's kind of broken down those silos and people can interact. The format, the delivery, um, I'm not sure what that will look like. I think um, what I know what we need is more primary education. So what you are teaching in your classroom, what I'm teaching in my classroom, that needs to be more accessible. Um, Cause what do we want to, I, I want what I want to talk about. I don't want to teach all day and then come home and talk about it again. So I talk about other stuff, right. um, but opening up, making more of that stuff, open access. Like I've recorded tons of my lectures during the pandemic, right? Can I publish those now? And um, right now I wouldn't, you know, want to, because I'm not sure if the college considers that their intellectual property and tuition mm. and all that stuff, right? I've got to be careful, but yeah, I can see that kind of being, more normalized where it's just all open, you know? Right. And on that note, what, and I know this is probably a very broad question. How, how did COVID-19 change what you do? I mean, like I said, we had to go completely online and I had never done that. Uh, we used Blackboard Learn. I was, ex and my, my current paramedic students are saints for their, <laughs> their grace with me trying to figure it out. You know, I was trying to draw um, on a tablet and screen record it. And then I would try making PowerPoint presentations, which I hate. Uh, but uh, but I love Microsoft. Microsoft, I, I don't hate you. Um, the Surface is wonderful. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, I, it took a lot of different trials before I found what worked. Um, we are just now getting back into a limited lab situation. Mm. Anecdotally for me, the students enjoyed the flexibility. They enjoyed mm -hmm. being able to uh, sit through a lecture at home and not have to have a babysitter, not have to find coverage at work, so on and so forth. But now they are saying that they they love being in person again. What, mm -hmm. what, are you, what was your experience uh, with your students affect and, and their enjoyment of the program. And have you started coming back to lab yet? Oh yeah, we're back in lab. We got back pretty quickly with heavy PPE on and, you know, lots of kind of distancing and all this stuff. Um, you're kind of reminding me, I've blacked some of it out cause it was freaking hard at first, but horrible, you're reminding me it? what we went through. <laughs> um, What the student is getting now compared to what they got pre-COVID, what's better about what they're getting now is they're getting a little bit more customized experience. So we started looking at lab as we needed to come in, get in, laser strike, like laser focused on what does this student need? And as soon as they've met their objectives, and as soon as they've you know, kind of hit that mastery level, they're done, they go, right? They don't need to hang around and... Um, so we got really purposeful about meeting kind of the standard. 
And so the students that have like these heavy demands, you know, with dependents or work or, or whatever else, they really are having a, a, I call it a customized experience. And that's what the average person is used to now, right? Like you have, you don't have, I don't go to amazon.com. I go to Ginger's Amazon, right? That's just for right. me. <laughs> um, so more and more people are expecting this from every experience they have. Um, what they've lost, what we're, what's missing is they're having fewer hallway conversations where they used to linger and mingle around and talk about this call. And well, I don't know, let's go ask Ginger and they come plop in my office. We're missing that right now. And we have, we have yet to come up with a digital solution or solution for that. Um, those kind of informal, what I call indoctrination conversations where they get kind of domesticated into EMS, right? We teach them how to be, um, other good things that have come out of it are the introverted students have been able to soar. So in the standard classroom in the U S the extroverted students have a better experience. They're asking questions. Um, they kind of dominate the environment on zoom calls because of the chat feature. Some students who wouldn't normally ask a question or participate is what they are willing to chat or put it in chat. And that means just by engaging, they're they're getting a better experience. Uh, so I've, I've 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 liked that because I actually think a lot of paramedics are introverted. We act like we're all big and large and on the stage and all that, but I think they're empaths and they're introverted and they're actually pretty sensitive people. Um, the thing that's changed most about my work is how I evaluate students now. So the standard multiple choice. Um, tests and things like that a lot of it we started asking ourselves what's our goal here what do we really need to do uh, so we've changed some how we evaluate it's a lot more essay format things like that oh wow yeah hmm. we just awesome. we just started asking ourselves everything like why do why were we doing it that way because it was just we were just a machine man we were just a machine until our legs got kicked out from under us and then it's like yeah. we start questioning every every process like okay we can't do it that way what was our goal originally <laughs> <laughs> how much time did they give you we they gave us a week they yeah, sent us home had... I'm, I'm curious what you're gonna say go ahead so they sent us home and they said okay um we need you guys to be operational and teaching online and next week. Like, so we went, we went on spring break and they said, go ahead and take everything home with you. Because <laughs> 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 we might, we might have one more week delay after spring break. So we took our stuff home with us, but we never went back. Oh, so it's two weeks gosh. for us, spring break, which nobody was doing anything. And then the additional week. Oh yeah. I, uh, and, and coming back to the classroom now and you could see the camaraderie the uh, the morale of the students the first day back they were all you know just slumped over in their chairs and they were just oh you know we got to be here we got to go to the sim lab or the sim center we have to so on and so forth but now that they've been working together again they have those i love what you call that the indoctrination conversations mm -hmm. because they do they're sitting, they're not supposed to be, but they're, you know, in, beside the bathroom with their mask on and they're standing apart and they're talking about, well, this is the call that I had this morning at three o'clock and we did this mm -hmm. and I don't really understand. And they, I love it. And they're becoming friends and mm -hmm. they are, you can just see the interaction. Now they are becoming a cohesive unit versus individuals 
who were sitting at home by themselves. Yep. And uh, it's it, it has made me really appreciate relationships a lot more and that student educator relationship and being able to pour into them and, and be in person. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing like that mm-hmm. to see their body language. And I can tell when they're tired or, um, I can't do any of that over zoom. I can't really assess them. Nope. <laughs> Especially if they don't have their camera on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tried making that a requirement in the beginning, but, uh, I got tired of seeing this. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't just sit there and click through everybody. I mean, that's just, it's impossible. So I know y'all are probably ready to go, but let me ask y'all a couple of questions. Yeah. How long have you been, how long has your podcast been published now? How long has it been out? We were just talking about that. We started in December of 2019. I think our, our first introductory episode was 2019. So that's awesome. I love your graphics. Thank you. <laughs> and then I, I I have to ask, how did y'all decide on the name? <laughs> so that's actually kind of a funny story. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so in our region, uh, we have, there, there is a dynamic, there is a difference and it's almost palpable. You know, you can almost feel the difference between a, a fire department paramedic versus a non-fire paramedic versus how paramedics are treated in the hospital. And um, long story short of it, the paramedics in our region, unfortunately, and in the state of Georgia, are typically treated like second-class citizens within the medical mm-hmm. world. And so uh, was it Jonathan Cannon that that said it during a meeting with his, with his chief that the, that the, paramedics at this department are treated like second class citizens. So we said, you know what, we're just going to go with that. And we're going to run with it. I like it. Medic class. It's citizens. really memorable. Like I, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, Oh, that's pretty catchy. I like that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Oh, we had yeah. come up with a couple options when Brandon hit me with that. I'm like, no, that's it. Don't, don't have a discussion on anything else. And, and I, and I'll just say too, that a lot of the credit for the graphics goes to me because um, <laughs> I say, Hey, Brandon, we need this graphic. Make it happen. And he does it. So really, I am the facilitator of that. Um, and then Brandon does it. So without yeah. me, it wouldn't happen is really what I'm really yeah. what I'm getting at. So I told you, he's, he's Jocko. And how long have y'all known each other? Long time. Too long. Yeah, I'm not even <laughs> sure. Jason has been a, uh, a mentor of mine for a long time. I, I went through paramedic school in 2013. And that's where I met him. Um, you know, he's been teaching. Gosh, how long have you been teaching, Jason? Uh, did my first Let's put some 1999. Age on. Yeah, 1999 was when I did my first. I was I became a paramedic in 1997. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You look so young. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. My oldest. So my oldest kid is 25. So I love her face good. just now. She goes, oh. Yeah. Oh. oh. Let me oh. look at you closer. <laughs> Ginger, thank you so much for your time. And uh if if people want to learn more about medic mindset, if they want to get connected, if they want to reach out to you, what how do you recommend doing so? 
What depends on what platform they're on. If they're on Twitter, you know, that's easy. I'm uh, Gingerlock ATX. Austin, the ATX is for Austin, Texas, but um, just medicmindset.com will get you started. If you've never heard of it and you want to kind of peruse around, you can see the, the you know, titles of episodes and some pictures and see if it's something you might be interested in. Uh, it's been, uh, I think I'm in my fifth year of doing it. So if you just go to any podcasting, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything like that, you'll be able to find it. Just type in Medic Mindset. Awesome. Well, I really hope that you come back. Will you come back? Oh my gosh, I had so much fun. I was kind of in a bad mood when we started, but now I'm in a good mood. I couldn't tell. (laughs) That's that's completely opposite of just about all of our guests. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It starts out so well. Like, boy, this is really, oh, wow, we really went sideways there. Yeah, and then we start seeing them doing this. Um, (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) So, well, thank you very much. Uh, We appreciate what you do. And um, not, not just, you know, what you do for education, but furthering the profession and hopefully inspire some some really sharp people uh to enter probably the best profession in the world so thank you i like that it is the best it's been good to me oh it's great all right everybody thank you so much for listening to the episode uh if you like what you heard please go to our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com and check out our online store where you can find all of our merchandise we have t-shirts we have hats we have mugs we have a lot of stuff that you would not expect for us to have Uh, but if you buy anything from the store it's going to help support the project and help us keep it free So again, www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also check out our social media. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.